Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be speaking with Joey Balaz, who is the Ontario Family Alliance Executive Member. We'll be discussing some of the challenges that have been faced in long-term care for the essential visitor. So let's have a listen. And so I just want to say thank you so much, Joyce, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. Um, really appreciate your time um, and your insight uh, from the Family Alliance Ontario as to you can what you can provide. So we'll start off by... I guess it's just for the the for-profit facilities and the not-for-profit and the municipal facilities. What have you seen as being the major differences uh, between them as to what's going on in long-term care with this pandemic? So from what I've been able to gather from reading various reports and things, it seems like the uh, long-term care facilities that are profit-run have had a higher death rate um, in proportion to the number of beds that they have. And when you think about 80% of all deaths having been in long-term care, and then you're looking at a higher number in the profit sector than you are in the non-for-profit and, and also in the municipal homes. So um, the, the Ontario Health Coalition did a fairly extensive um, research on that one, and 700 deaths were in for-profit homes. Yeah. 275 were in non-profit homes and 82 in municipal homes. So you can see there's a big difference there. And then proportional, um, in even in a week's time, there was an increase of like 28.5% in um, in that one week in, in for-profit and with only 14.15% in the non-for-profit and actually a decrease in of 18% in the municipal homes. And that was from April 28th to May 5th. So that was well into the pandemic. Yes. And you can see that, um, you know, there's, there's quite a difference. And so you have to start to wonder why the difference in the for-profit. And when you think about staffing as being a major, major um, proportion of the expenses in um, in any kind of care like that, um, you can see that there has been uh, less staffing in the for-profit homes and, and leading to more devastating results, I think. And the, the Health Coalition also did a survey where they surveyed the staff and um, some of it was when I read the the the, um, the results of that survey, it was pretty heartbreaking to see some of it. Um, the the just part of it that they talked about in terms of the shortage of staffing and and the resulting missed care. Um, when they did the survey, sixty eight percent said it was worse now in the pandemic in the for profit. And 54% said it was worse than a nonprofit and municipally 50%, but the, they all reported that missed care. And part of that missed care is the emotional care. Yeah, exactly. And then with the um, family members now, the restrictions in terms of for visiting um, and with the administrators interpreting how the um, the guidance given by the province, how that has, you know, impacted everything, because not all homes are, or facilities are going to be the same in terms of how they've inter interpreted things. Some do recognize essential visitors, some do not. And so what have you heard back um, in terms of for that, you know, miscommunication and the impact on families? So, 
um, there are directives that come from the provincial government in, in terms of the Minister of Health, the, the Chief Medical Officer of Health and the Minister of Health as well. And those regulations mid-March just locked down everything. So as the pandemic continued and people were getting a better handle on things, in May, there was some lessening of the restrictions. Now, initially, they said an essential visitor was only for somebody who was death, uh, on death's bed or um, um, gravely ill yeah. or um, um, a parent, a mother giving birth or a, a child. So those were considered the essential visitors. In May 20, on May 26, that changed to include essential visitors for people um, who needed that extra care. And that took from May 7th when the federal uh, guidance document came down till May 26th for that change. So it took yeah. three weeks for the Ontario government to make that change. And in terms of the, uh, the federal gu guidance document, it, it really clearly identified that people with a, develop with a uh, sorry, disability needed to have that essential person with them and that the, the essential visitor restrictions needed to include that. But we still haven't actually seen that clear uh, designate, de designation of the essential care person. Yeah. And so anybody who has a disability, and if you think about the long-term care facilities, most people in there have a disability of some sort yeah. or another. So they their rights are being denied by the fact that people aren't letting being let in. So even though the directives are there, the uh, um, the facilities themselves are considered autonomous corporations. And the Minister of Health identified that early on. That, they're ident that they are autonomous corporations and can set their own rules or regs. Um, so they look at the guidance documents or their directives, and then they decide to do what they're wanting to do. So I think you, we, can, we can say it's easier to exclude everybody yeah. than it is to provide the training and the PPE and everything else for people to go in. And I guess the argument on the, the family side is that... Um, you know, we are not going to put our people at risk. Absolutely not. So people are not going to go in when they're ill. They're going to make sure that they that they follow the precautions that are necessary because they really want to provide that hands-on, loving, caring, touch uh, care that they have done previously. So when you think about the people who are in the long-term care, um, most families told their, their people when they went into long-term care that they wouldn't abandon them there. Yes. And that is exactly what's being, ha what's happening right now. And so it is up, up to the, you know, the administrators in those long-term cares or any congregate setting really as to whether someone's going to go in or not. And the fact that this pandemic is going to be with us for some time and, um, the fact that family members still are not, for the most part, at, for, at most facilities are still not able to go in. That is not very, um, I guess, appropriate for the inclusive of care and right. for and what we're being told by the RNAO in terms of, you know, there could be a second wave with the flu uh, season coming upon us in, you know, in the fall. So how can we, you know, be able to, I guess, move forward and to kind of mobilize to, to get this to be changed by the government? So I don't know how to move forward. Yeah. <laughs> people have, there's been thousands of letters sent to um, numerous people, the chief medical officer of health, the premier, 
um, that has all happened and there's been no change. And I, I remember the chief medical officer of health acknowledging we're getting letters, yeah. but it still hasn't provided that real um, strong directive. It actually needs to be mandated mandated across the province that essential caregivers are let in. And the best example uh, in terms of a really clear definition is the one that was put out by the National Institute of Aging, Ryerson, yeah. um, talking about what a family caregiver is and how different it is than visitor. And so part of the part of the problem in is that people hear that the visitor restrictions have been lessened. But that still does not allow that hands-on care. Yes. Like I saw a really crazy picture the other day of this this wall that was made where you had um, plastic arms going in and plastic arms going out, allowing you to have that kind of a hug. And you're going, yeah. that can happen with PPE. It doesn't have to be in that situation, right? So yeah. where has humanity gone? That's That's my question. And I really don't know what more people can do. I mean, they, I think the problem is that we are all trying to limit our exposure. Yeah. And so we're being very careful. So we're not going to do the mass protests that, that sometimes bring about results because we know that our people are at risk. Yeah. And if we do that, we won't, we certainly won't be able to get in. Exactly. And I know that there has been a number of initiatives by um, MPP, Lisa Gretzky, by the mm -hmm. RNAO. They have a family reunification five-step process um, to allow family members back in. Um, nobody is saying that uh, is a guarantee that there will never be another outbreak. However, um, that social integration really needs to happen uh, for a lot of uh, residents uh, that are in long-term care. Um and then I think you touched upon in terms of the human rights violations. Um, can you just kind of walk us through in terms of some of those um, violations that are happening? So one of the clearest one is that in any kind of a, um, in any, I'm going to call it a health setting okay. because that's kind of what long-term care is as well, is in, in that there has to be the accommodation made for, per, for a person's disability. So without that happening, the rights of that person are being denied. And in so, like I sit here and I'm going, we live in Canada. We, we scream and holler about other countries that deny people human rights. And here we are doing it to our elders, people with disabilities. And I'm going, we're not much better. Yeah. And so we need to stop pointing fingers unless we're going to change things. And the federal guidance document allowed for that because it really clearly identified that it needed to, that, that healthcare facilities didn't matter what they were, you know, any kind of congregate setting needed to allow for that disability accommodation. And it's not happening. We still hear of people who can't get into hospitals when people need to go in. Yeah. Um, I still can't get a guarantee for the gentleman I support to make sure that I could be with him. And so without that, you're really stuck. You can't yeah. go anywhere. Um, you know that, you know, we are all trying to prevent uh, an emergency from happening. Yes. Um, and when you can't get in and you don't have that guarantee, that just raises the level of anxiety for people. Um, when people have... Uh, they need to have that person with them and they can't have that. 
And so with long-term care, it's very similar, right? People were in there 10 hours a day with their loved one, and all of a sudden that stopped. And as I said earlier, everybody, almost everybody in the long-term care has disabilities. And so their human rights in terms of the the charter of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, they're just being denied. And then there's another part that people don't understand is that there are a lot of that there are quite a number of people in the long-term care facility who are not over 65. So we've got people with developmental disabilities who are in there. We've got people with MS who are in there who just can't manage at home anymore. So it, and, and so you sit there and think, you know, what are we really doing to our population of our most vulnerable people? We say we're there to protect them and that's not what we're seeing. Exactly. And no, you're absolutely right. There is a mixture in long-term care because in the province of Ontario, anyone over the age of 18 can be admitted Mm -hmm. into long-term care. And there are a number of individuals um, that do fit in that type of small group, but it definitely is there. I know when my family member was in long-term care, they were not someone over 65 at all. Um, They definitely fit um, into a, a small sect. And there's a lot of individuals that you know, they were out in the community and now they're not. They don't no longer have those social supports that they once had. Um, so, you know, in closing, like what would you suggest or what would you, any or any other thoughts that you have in regards to this whole situation and the fact that we're going to be in this pandemic for some time to come as to what can, um, you know, families, anybody be able to do to kind of change this? I think they need to continually lobby. I mean, we have to lobby the the long-term care facilities themselves. We need to lobby the government. We can't let up. We have to make sure, and we have to let everybody else know. We have to tell our friends. We have to tell our family members. You know, it's not just up to me or Mm -hmm. you or the person who has somebody in long-term care to do that advocacy. It needs to be all of Ontarians, all all of the people in Ontario, because, you know, we're looking at an aging population and, Mm -hmm. I don't know of anybody who's who's saying, yeah, I really want to go into a long-term care facility, especially exactly. with what they've seen in, in the pandemic. So for that, we also need to stop, I guess we need to lobby or, or advocate for smaller facilities um, rather than these huge warehousing places. There are some really good models out there in, in um, the Netherlands yeah. and uh, they have a, a facility for people with dementia and they're very small uh, places, maybe 10 people. And when you have that, you can you can really develop the team of supports that a person that the people in that home need. And you can contain, I mean, you, you can't you can't stop that virus at the door. Nobody can, yeah. but you can do a lot to help with that. And when you have fewer numbers in there, the spread, of course, is going to be less. Um, so that is another thing. Instead of calling for more shovels of the ground for another 320 bed home um, in, in speed, what, what was it called? In wartime speed is yes. how, they are de- how are they describing in terms of how this will be built. So, so long as we continue to, to create these facilities, people are going to go in. We have huge wait lists for people to get into long-term care. So let's look at better home care so people can stay home and age That's in place right. where they want to be. That's number one. Mm-hmm. And make, make sure that there's funding attached to the person instead of a bed. 
right? Right now, the facility has beds and that's how it's funded. So, so long as one person moves out and another person can move in. And with a huge wait list, you start to wonder whether some of the, and it's something I'm made, maybe horribly saying, but so long as there's people waiting again and they're not going to worry too much about the kind of care that they give. And that's not to say that the people who are working there yeah. aren't trying their very best. Um, but when you have to do, I think there's there's times where people have 30 people that they that's have right. to care for. They have six minutes to get them ready in the morning. Like, I don't know about you, but it takes me longer than six minutes to get yeah. ready in the morning. So there's a lot of things that happen in that institutional model of care. And it's been proven um, when, when you saw it in the developmental sector that the institutional model of care did not provide care. It provided regimented, um, I don't know what you're going to call it, mm-hmm. right? But it was regimented um, care, so to speak, but not true human care. And so they closed down those institutions in 2009, yet we have these huge long-term care facilities that are still open. So why is it that it's been proven not to be a reliable model of care, but it continues to be sit there, to, to be used for, for our seniors? And I think for me, it really speaks to the devaluation that there is for our seniors. Yes, They've given us so much, you know, they, 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 they've, they provided so much for for their families, and now they get treated so disrespectfully. You know, so uh, for me, it's it it talks about humanity. Where is the humanity in all of this? Absolutely, I definitely agree. And thank you so much for your time, and thank you for coming on and speaking to to this. So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to today's show. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for this or any other episode, please contact us on our social media at Twitter at Family Councils and at Facebook, Family Councils Collaborative Alliance. Thank you so much and hope you enjoyed this episode. At the end of this video, there is a link for the e-consult series, which will be starting. And this will provide information on e-consult as to how it got started and what it is. Thank you.